This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the most recent Republican Party proposal to reform health care policy. With me to discuss the topic is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, James Capretta. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Glad to be with you today. Very briefly on background, as is well known, the Republican Party has been strongly opposed to the Affordable Care Act. Despite opposition to the access, delivery, insurance, and other reforms in the law, the Republican Party had not proposed a comparatively substantive alternative. However, earlier this year, Republican Senators Richard Burr, Tom Coburn, and Orrin Hatch proposed a legislative plan titled the CARE Act, or the Patient Choice, Affordability, Responsibility, and Empowerment Act, likely the most substantive Republican alternative proposal presented over the past four years. With me to discuss the provisions of the CARE Act is again James Capretta. Jim's bio, of course, is posted on the website. So let me, uh, Jim, begin by just making uh, two points. Uh, the CARE Act is a plan, not legislative language, and the proposal would repeal the ACA in its entirety, though it would keep or reinstate several ACA provisions, for example, retain the ACA's Medicare provisions, and at least in theory, several insurance reforms, for example, allowing a parent's policy to cover their child up to age 26 and a ban on lifetime insurance claim limits. So with all that, my first question is the issue of mandates. And of course, probably the most contentious provision in the ACA was the individual mandate. The Burr-Coburn-Hatch proposal has similar, and you'll tell me if they are or not, uh, provisions that are termed auto-enroll or are auto-enroll and continuous coverage provisions. Can you explain these or how are they different uh, than an individual mandate? Well, I do think they are different in the sense that the system would remain entirely voluntary for the public. So no one would be forced by the government to jump into an insurance plan and if they didn't do it, you know, get a pretty big tax penalty applied to them, which is the essence of the mandate. So none of that is in the Burke-Coburn-Hatch proposal. What is there is a provision that says anyone who stays continuously insured uh, would be protected from having their premiums adjusted based on their health status. So if they move from an employer plan to the individual market, they would no longer be risk rated based on their health status if they were continuously covered, at least for some period of time prior to enrolling in the individual plan. Now. Often people will say, well, what do you do about people that can't afford insurance? Isn't that going to leave some people out? Well, no. Uh, you, the plan, we haven't talked about it yet, but it does have a tax credit mechanism for people that are outside the employer system. So basically, everybody in the country would either have access to an employer plan or a tax credit sufficient to get them into an insurance product that protect, protected their uh, financial situation at some catastrophic level at least. Um, so everybody would have the ability to get into an insurance plan and stay continuously covered. Moreover, as you indicated, there's an auto-enroll provision at the election of the states. States could say for anyone who didn't overtly use their credit to purchase an insurance plan, would, could be automatically enrolled in a plan at no cost to the consumer because the credit would be exactly equal to the premium. The upfront deductible would be adjusted 
as necessary to ensure the premium exactly equaled the credit. So you can see from these provisions that it essentially is a universal plan, that everybody in the country would have an employer plan or a tax credit that would get them at least catastrophic protection, and they would no longer be risk rated for health status as long as they were in one of those coverage platforms. Okay. Well, let me just ask as a, as a related follow-up. Why does the Republican Party, I'm sure you've been asked this question many times, why does the Republican Party oppose the individual mandate since it's an, since it's an idea attributed to the Conservative Heritage Foundation and was a part of legislation introduced in the 1990s by Senators, as you well know, Hatch and Grassley? Well, look, I think this is a, this is sort of a, a, a standard talking point from people that are trying to promote, you know, the, the health care law that passed in 2010 is to say, hey, we took a bunch of provisions from a law that was introduced 20 years ago, and now we're going to hold you to these provisions in an entirely different context. Some conservative Republicans, some Republicans proposed the individual mandate 20 years ago. But that doesn't mean that in the context of today's uh, political legislative environment, they still think it's a good idea. And th 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 no one you know, holds every politician to ideas they held 20 years ago. So I think it's a bit unfair, frankly, to keep going back to this as, hey, we just adopted your plan. The truth is that the reason why people oppose the health care law that passed in 2010 is it undeniably moves huge amounts of authority over the health system to the federal government. I mean, that is the essence of the bill. It has massive movements of authority over the regulatory system, over the delivery system, over where and when and how and what you pay for insurance. And most everybody on the conservative side who looks at it says, this is pretty dangerous for the health system because the federal government now has a massive amount of authority, which it almost never gives up. And it uses that to encroach more and more on the uh, design and organization of anything it has that much authority over. So the federal government's going to end up, you know, the president doesn't like when people say this, but the, the federal government's going to end up running the system, you know, little by little over time. That's why people oppose the law. Okay, okay, fair enough. Let's go to coverage and mandates. So under the proposed plan, uh, coverage and mandates are less generous. Um, federal uh, mandated benefits go away. How would you describe or explain how these two provisions or aspects are treated? Well, uh, there would be no, um, let's talk about mandates. I presume you mean in this the requirements of what would be uh, in a benefit plan that someone would be allowed to purchase with credits. The only requirement that I uh, uh, believe is in the Burr, Coburn, Hatch proposal, and I think is rightly in there and should be in there, is that you have to have at least a out-of-pocket protection for the consumer. Now remember, of course, FEHB has, quote, benefit mandates, but it's very minimal, right? It's, you know, hospitalization, physician services, prescription prescription drugs and outpatient care, something like that. You do not need the federal government to mandate everything that goes into a benefit package for a reasonable thing to emerge from the consumer and regulatory markets at the state levels. The president and others often will say, oh, these are junk plans sold in the individual market. Actually, that's not true. If you look at the individual market, most of the plans that were paid and covered in the individual market were covering the normal stuff that people want covered hospitalization, physician services, prescription drugs, and outpatient care. Now, it's true that sometimes they would exclude things like mental health care and substance abuse treatment and maternity care for people that didn't think they would need it. But, you know, I think allowing for that is not necessarily a bad thing. So this proposal from these uh, senators would be much more flexible on that benefit front. So basically it, it gives the states the authority or allows the states to decide what the mandated benefits should be. 
That's correct, as, they, as it was previously. And the, uh, uh, the only federal requirement is that, again, that it has some upper limit on out-of-pocket expenses for reasonable medical expenses. Okay. Now, on the coverage uh, credits, in this plan, insurance coverage is subsidized up to 300% of the federal poverty level. The ACA subsidizes with uh, tax credits up to 400%. Yes. Uh, actually, I believe both of these uh, approaches to this are actually misguided in a little, in a certain way. Both the healthcare law of 2010 as well as this plan. I think income testing a credit that's outside the employer system really is probably the wrong way to go. It's better to give a fixed credit. I think that everyone gets regardless of your income, because in the sense the credit is supposed to replicate the tax preference that people get from employer coverage. If you don't get an employer plan, you still get a tax benefit for health insurance. Because it's not taxed. Because it's not taxed. And you still get a, a benefit for health insurance outside the employer system if you get this credit. Okay, So it doesn't really make sense to me that you cut it off at 300% of the poverty line or even 400% of the poverty line as the president's plan does. So I would, I would uh, this is one area where I believe it would be better just to provide a uniform credit up the income scale so you don't have some of the work disincentives that are associated with both the um, existing credits and the exchanges as well as what would be proposed by these Republican senators. Okay, okay. Since you did mention uh, we did infer the tax exclusion issue. Uh, this is likely the most controversial plan element, and that is it uh, caps the employee tax exclusion. That is, an employee's health benefits would be untaxed here up to 65% of the cost of the average benefit. How would capping the exclusion not result, and this is the concern, in a reduction in employer coverage and not raise an employee's tax burden? Well, there's a couple of things to say about this. Number one, this would this is essentially a reform of a provision that is already in law now called the Cadillac tax that was enacted in the ACA okay so the Cadillac this is really in in effect not very different except it's an improvement over the Cadillac tax remember the Cadillac tax is a 40% excise tax that applies to all employer plans that are over and above a certain that are over and above a th certain threshold this would say establish a similar type threshold and if an employer pays premiums above that amount it's taxable income to the worker. It is the same effect. Both will have the same effect in the sense that employers will adjust their offerings to try to stay below the cap. Now, if they don't adjust, let's just take the hypothetical. If they don't adjust and they go above the cap, under this proposal from these Republican senators, you, you get taxed at your regular individual tax marginal rate, okay? Which means higher income workers would pay more and lower income workers would pay a lot less. That's not true under the president's plan. If the employer passes on that 40% excise tax to the workforce that they'd have to pay, which they would, it would apply equally to you know, the high-paid CEO to the janitor. Okay, So in some ways, it's fairer to do this through the income tax system. Now, having said that, I believe that they set the threshold too low. Uh, so it's, right, that's where I was going. This is more severe, certainly, as compared to the Cadillac tax. It would tax. be below the Cadillac tax, absolutely. Um, and I don't think they need to be that low. Uh, that uh, essentially they did it at the level they did it at because they wanted to make this a revenue-neutral bill. Okay? And this raises more money. And this raised more money than they need by a long shot, okay, by any reasonable estimate of what it was. And that's just a, you know, this is just the normal back and forth of a, going on in a legislative process where you work with people that are estimating it, 
and they overshoot the mark a little bit, but they didn't quite realize it when they introduced the proposal. So when this got down, when this gets down to it, you can set a tax exclusion level much closer to the Cadillac tax level that was established in the um, ACA. ACA than the 65% of an expensive plan that was set in, in this particular proposal. And do you have concerns under however specific this uh, percent is defined relative to employers dropping coverage? No, I mean, why would they drop co more coverage into this than they would the Cadillac plan? Nobody brought that up with the Cadillac plan, right? So, I mean, why would this be more? It, w it wouldn't, no, and absolutely. You still have a tax preference up to the threshold, so there's a massive incentive to offer the coverage. Well, you will admit the Cadillac tax was set at a pretty high premium amount. Yeah, but, you know, I would say that there are recent Mercer surveys said that about 20% of firms believe they're going to exceed the threshold in a few years' time. On the Cadillac tax? Yes. On the current one? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I, I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't just sort of say it's all this benign thing because it's introduced by a Democrat. It's not. Okay. Let's go to one of the major reforms in this plan, and that is the reform to the Medicaid program. Uh, the plan substantially changes the Medicaid program. How so? Well, in the Medicaid program, you know, the, the basic idea here is to give people on Medicaid more access to mainstream insurance instead of just expanding Medicaid, which in a lot of states people think is not working that great. Okay, so uh, the Supreme Court ruled that the states didn't have to do the mandatory expansion, and then I think you know, maybe this is time to revisit this question a little bit and say, well, what would be a better way to uh, help people on the low end of the income scale get good health insurance and therefore good access to care? And this proposal, I think, points in the basic right direction, which is to say, let's give them the same tax credit as a base amount as middle class people if they're not in the employer system. And then on top of that, use Medicaid as a supplement so they're buying into more mainstream insurance plans and not just Medicaid-type plans, okay? Um, if you do that, I think the states can start experimenting, doing things like they did in the state of Indiana with how they designed their insurance reform uh, for lo their low-income population under Governor Mitch Daniels. And other states could, could you know, uh, try other types of options. But the basic idea is you give all of them a fixed credit and Medicaid becomes much more of a insurance, um, uh, you know, like, like has been proposed for Medicare, a little bit like a premium support plan to buying into some kind of an insurance plan. And many of the plans that they would be buying into would be the same insurance plans that other people getting the credit would be buying into, and therefore much more likely to provide them a wider array of physicians they could go see. But correct me if I'm wrong, this is a de facto, from the federal's perspective, this is de facto then a block grant program in that the federal government would then provide a capped amount of federal contributions for other care beyond acute. Well, I think under their proposal, they would call it a per capita amount, not a block grant. So each state would get a fixed per person amount for people that are Medicaid eligible, and this would be in addition to the federal base tax credit, by the way. Okay, So everybody on Medicaid now gets a base federal tax credit, and then the federal government also gives to the states a per capita amount for the Medicaid program, for the people that are eligible for this supplement system, and then the states would design how they want to dole out their supplements to their eligible population so that those folks would get into, as I said, and be able to access the same options that of, of state-regulated plans that middle-class people would be accessing with their tax credits. Okay? The idea is to integrate this more with the regular insurance system. Two follow-ups. One is 
these are low earners, so many of them wouldn't have federal tax obligations, correct? So how does that then... It's a refundable credit, right? So just like the... Um, but if um, they don't owe federal taxes... You, you still get it. You still get it. I mean, it's the same thing with the premium credits and the exchanges. None, most of the people getting these premium credits and exchanges almost owe no taxes. taxes. Okay, yeah. okay. And correct me if I'm wrong, would or would not this plan for Medicaid provide coverage for the working poor? So it covers the disabled, it covers the duals, it covers children uh, and pregnant women, but does it cover the working poor? So well, states would... standard single yes. parentless adults. This reform, it should be understood, is really aimed at people on Medicaid that are accessing Medicaid for regular insurance needs, not the disabled, not the elderly, not the duals. So this reform of Medicaid set them aside. They're in the regular Medicaid program. This reform would try to get the population, many, obviously many are women and children, who are on Medicaid for health insurance purposes um, into a mainstream insurance system. Now, for the people that are not currently eligible for Medicaid, and this brings up another important issue, people that are not currently eligible for Medicaid, um, the states would be able to decide where they want to set the upper limits in terms of putting them into this new supplement system buying into mainstream insurance plans. And I think, you know, look, I mean, another part of this is how do you transition from the expansion that was enacted in 2010 to this kind of an approach. My own view is you're going to have to have a grandfather system. You're going to have to say anybody who got is on Medicaid as part of the expansion stays on Medicaid as long as they want to. But new entrants into the program, you going know, going forward, right? Going forward, there will be a new system where they're going to access this supplement system. Okay, let's go to then delivery reforms. I did not see. Does this plan offer policies for improving care in the clinical practice setting? <laughs> this is an interesting question. I think the the maybe the supposition behind your question is that the healthcare law of 2010 did. Well, there's CMMI, there are 40-plus demonstrations under CMMI, and we just spoke previously about accountable care organizations. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, just a different, a different uh, predisposition to some of these things from people that are coming, coming at it a little bit differently, which is, the, I think the idea that, you know, fundamental delivery system reform is going to be driven in a positive direction just by a regulatory apparatus and demonstration programs and incentives pushed through the Medicare program driven by CMS I think a lot of people aren't really convinced that that's the way to get real delivery system reform. So, you know, many of the good delivery systems that are out there, they didn't happen because Medicare put them in there. They happened for other on-the-ground, local, cultural, idiosyncratic reasons. So they're a private, comparable, accountable care organization. They've right? been there for decades, okay? And they emerged wholly independent of the federal government. So the question really is, how do you replicate that kind of a model in more places and, I, you know, look, I'm not disparaging of everything CMS and CMMI are trying to do, but uh, I, I, my own view is that we will get a lot farther toward delivery system reform if we don't try to push demonstrations through fee-for-service Medicare, but instead allow Medicare to become a more competitive program. I, I agree that the delivery system in some ways is formed very, very heavily by the incentives embedded in Medicare. So we have to fee-for-service. Fee-for-service right. Medicare. Right. And all of these demonstrations are aimed at trying to make fee-for-service Medicare more like an integrated care system, right? Mm -hmm. And that's like pushing a rock up a hill. It really is. And so I, I, I really do believe we will make more progress if people could see for themselves that they would save money, the beneficiary community, by in electing overtly themselves to go into an integrated delivery system. 
The big problem with ACOs is they left the beneficiaries out. They said, hey, beneficiaries, you know, you don't have to do anything. You're just going to end up in a quasi-managed care system. And, um, you know, you may or may not realize you're in it. And, uh, but don't worry, you can still do whatever you want. Well, that, that's really not a way to get a lot of progress. Right. They're assigned uh, retrospectively for the purpose of whether they save money, and they can choose any care they want. Absolutely. And many of the physicians, you know, who have these patients don't even realize they're supposed to be managing their care. So it's, it's not, let me just say, I don't think they're making a, a huge amount of progress yet on that front. All right, time for one more question, and this is the open-ended catch-all, and that is, what further reforms would you suggest if you were able to contribute to this plan or any other plan? Yeah, I do believe that this plan probably needs, a, you know, now that we're a year into, you know, implementation of the current law, a year in implementation of the real guts of it now, um, you're going to need a transition provision, you know. So you, you're, you're not going to be able to just go in and, undo everything that's now been put in motion overnight. And so you're going to have to have some system that says, okay, a lot of people are now in this new system of some, in some way, some fashion. Um, nobody's going to just throw them out of that system. They're going to stay there. Uh, but we're also going to create a more flexible, less regulated structure that a lot of people, other people can also go into. And the two are going to have to probably run in parallel for some period of time. So I think this Burr, Coburn, Hatch plan, as will every other replacement plan is going to have to deal with the fact they're going to have to have a transition provision for what what was enacted in 2010. Okay, okay, fair enough. Well, Jim, sadly to say, we're at our time boundary, so no problem. let me say thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.